listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and normally when I have a guest, I like to kick it off with some kind of anecdote or story or factoid, but I am so excited about this week's guest that I couldn't come up with anything good beyond the quality of the person and how strongly I feel about their work. My guest today is Dr. Neil Thies, and he is so many things. He's a professor of pathology at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine, where he's been a pioneering researcher in adult stem cell plasticity and the anatomy of the human interstitium. Now, for my anatomy nerds, you might remember back in 2018, where the news broke that someone had shown that fascia actually has organ-like properties. Yeah, this is that guy. Um, He's a longtime student of Zen Buddhism, and in my life, he was one of the very first people that I'd met who was seeking to build bridges between the study of human experience and belief, the nature of consciousness and science, medicine and theory. He is also a thought leader in complexity theory, and he's got a new book. It's called Notes on Complexity, a Scientific Theory of Connection, Consciousness and Being. And it beautifully unfolds how each layer of our reality is interconnected, um, that we are systems within systems, also made of systems. And it is done with such nuance and grace that I have zero doubt at this point that it's going to remain my favorite book of 2023 and possibly my favorite book for the next few years. It's part history lesson, part science lesson, and part spiritual journey. I have learned so much from knowing him. And for years, we've wanted the opportunity, that right moment to have him on the show to share that wisdom with you. And today's the day. So Dr. Neil, welcome to Better Than Fine. Hi. Hi, darling. <laughs> Hello. I'm so excited. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> we go back. We do go back a hot yeah. minute. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you want to start there, but you're welcome to share your thoughts if that's where you want to jump off. Yeah, I think it was actually um, around the time that I had my last uh, rotator cuff tear. (laughs) Yes. um, Yeah. And uh, I wandered into the gym and um, you and your team were there to help take care of me and teach me and set me on the road to health and wellness. Unfortunately, I've screwed it up again because (laughs) I wasn't being attentive for a moment. Well, if anybody knows that life's a journey, I think it's you. And it's interesting, you know, I'm honored to hear you say that that my team at the time gave you a road to health and wellness, because I think for me, you created so many roads in my mind that have led me to what I do now. Uh, And and so I've always been honored whenever you say anything positive about my impact (laughs) in your life, because I think you've had such an impact in mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was, that was, uh, that was a turning point. Thank you. No, seriously. Have I never said that explicitly? Um, <laughs> I think you have, but I think I'm just having an embarrassed moment as you do. But uh, for the for the sake of the listener, not having to listen to us gush at each other yeah. for too long, um, I, I want to invite them in to this conversation about something that I think can be intimidating. But in my experience, you've done a great job of making accessible. Thank you. So what is complexity theory and how does one become an expert in (laughs) the theory of everything? (laughs) Uh, You read a little. Um, A little. A little. Uh, You know, so complexity theory. Um, Complexity theory is a kind of systems theory. You mentioned the word systems. And um, so systems, you know, typical Western science is that we take things apart and look at the pieces. So you take apart a clock and you look at the pieces. You take apart a car, you look at the pieces. You take apart a body and look at the pieces. We call that anatomy. Um, you take apart the tissues and organs and look at the cells and we call that cell biology. We take apart the cells and we call that microbiology. It's molecular biology. Um, the thing is that when you look at a clock um, or a car, if you're a really good engineer, you can actually um, put the pieces together again, not only to rebuild the clock, but you can even look at the pieces and study them and realize, oh, this will put together to become a clock. This will become a car. The pieces and the thing that they are a, that they create as a system are precisely the same thing. And so it's very easy to engineer and to reverse engineer, et cetera. Um, 
So systems theory was being discussed as the follow-up to our reductionist science of the last several centuries, where we're taking things apart all the time, apart all the time. So the question was, how do molecules assemble into cells? How do cells assemble um, into organs and tissues and such things? Um, we couldn't really study these processes until computers were invented, because <clears throat> this is where we get into a little bit of mathematics. Nothing, nothing hardcore. <laughs> we can handle it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you're trying to describe the shape of a triangle, you can use Pythagorean's theorem and you have a simple equation. Um, if you have something that's completely random, let's say water molecules bouncing around in a glass of water and the warmer the water is, the, the more kinetic energy the molecules have, they're bouncing around faster, they're moving faster. We don't know what any one molecule is going to do, but we can describe overall collectively um, what uh, using statistical methods. So simple mathematics that you can just sort of put on a piece of paper is mm. sufficient to explain this. But um, eventually they discovered something called chaos theory, which many people uh, in your listening crew might have heard of. Some of you might have heard of complexity, but it's just not as well known as chaos. And chaos theory depended on computers and it depended on the discovery of a kind of mathematics called fractal geometries. Um, and I'm sure most of your listeners, probably all of them have seen fractals, even if they didn't know the name. Um, they're these very, in, usually in color, you see them, um, and they're these very intricate filigreed uh, shapes that as you go in closer, it looks like the same shape. And no matter how close in you go, it's the same shape. And it turns out that um, this is one way that the world organizes itself and the way material in the world organizes itself. And we see fractals, for example, in the branching of trees. Um, a trunk comes up and then branches into a couple of branches. And if you look closely, each of those looks like a trunk and they branch and they branch and they branch. And so this self-similarity across scales is um, the hallmark of, of chaos. And you see it in the way puffy clouds look puffy from a distance and you go closer and it's the same puffs and you go closer, it's the same puffs. And yeah, and it describes things in our bodies. So, um, you know, the way, well, to start off, you can imagine a, a river, let's say the Mississippi Delta, and you see the branches of all the smaller rivers coming yeah, in. Tributaries. The yeah, with all the tributaries. And if you take a picture of that from a satellite, that's the picture you get. But if you make it a black and white picture and show it to me and say, oh, this is a, a picture of the blood vessels in a human lung, I couldn't argue. It's the same shape. Yeah. It's the same structure. So these sorts of structures are present throughout the world and in living systems and in non-living systems as well. Yeah, I think I think my favorite one is when you see pictures of, of nebulas and star systems and the way that they look like um, neurons in the brain, right? Yeah. Like clusters of neurons. That's always right. been my favorite. Yeah, and that's a common one because they want, you know, is the universe functioning as a gigantic yeah. brain? And it's and also it's beautiful. Not, it's gorgeous. It's not. You're certain no, it's not. Not. <laughs> it's not in that way. Well, well, uh, we can. Anyway, different rabbit hole, but let's come back yeah, up that's to. That's a different rabbit hole. Let's finish this rabbit hole. Yeah. So in the 1970s, like 71 or 72, I'd have to look it up. It's in the book. Um, uh, a computer game was created called The Game of yes. Life uh, by a mathematician named John Conway. And it's just, uh, you know, a field of squares uh, making a grid and squares could be alive or dead, depending whether they were white or black and which cells were alive or dead um, and which would die or which would come alive between turns of the game. Every step, there'd be another calculation. You would get different patterns. And this turned out to be really interesting because there were some, so you, you start off with a few um, random points on the, the grid and those just die off. They're lonely and they're, they're out there in the field and they have no one to sustain them. But if you have, whether something is alive or dead would depend on the number of cells next to it, number of squares next to it, whether they were alive or dead. 
And so you might die of loneliness um, if there were too few squares next to you. Um, but if there were a lot of squares, then um, you get around an empty square, it would become alive. And sun patterns would be self-sustaining. So if you have a block of three by three squares, um, that will, every turn, it will reproduce itself. So it's stable. Mm. Um, another kind of stability is a blinking thing. So if you have a line of three squares, the next turn, it's three vertical, vertical. squares. Yeah, so three horizontal becomes three back vertical. Horizontal, and it just does that forever. Mm -hmm. um, then there are, it turns out there were some patterns that created endlessly repeating patterns that were self-sustaining um, and could be described by chaos. And so you had patterns that would lead to chaotic systems that would be self-sustaining and evolving. And this was the key thing about uh, needing computers. These were mathematical formulas that you couldn't just solve it once on a piece of paper. Each turn, you have to take it another step forward, take it another step forward. So it's processing in time, not only in space. And that's why we needed computers to understand these. So interesting, the game of life had order, disorder, and chaos. But then what they discovered was there was a range mathematically on the boundary between chaos and perfect order, a range uh, it's described by one author as, um, as though chaos and order are pulling at each other mm. and where they pull, you get complexity. Now, um, this is both chaos and complexity are described as systems where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You can't look at the parts. You can't look at a bunch of squares and go, oh, I know what this pattern is going to be. You have to pick a starting point and then play it out over time. Yeah, let and, it evolve. And see what will happen. You can't intuit it. So the, it's said the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. With chaos, if you have the same squares at the beginning, if you have the same starting conditions, um, you will wind up getting exactly the same outcome. Now, mm. uh, an area where people are familiar with this kind of thing is weather prediction. When I was a kid, weather prediction was awful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was completely unreliable, and you, you wondered, why do we even bother? Um, now we have apps on our phones that can tell us, in two hours, will it be raining or not? Um, in two days, will it be raining or not? Um, and that's because weather is a chaotic system. And we now know how to model that very complicated, not complex, complicated <laughs> system um, to make good predictions that, that go far out. Um, there's a famous uh, metaphor, not metaphor, there's a famous way of describing this, um, that if you have a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil, mm. it can create a tornado in Texas. And the thing is that if you model the air currents around that flapping butterfly um, and the rest of the atmosphere, it will always create that tornado. But if it moves a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, you won't get a tornado in Texas. You might get it in Missouri um, or you might get a typhoon on the other side of the planet or you just might have no bad weather, you know. Um, so it's. Chaotic systems are incredibly dependent on their starting conditions. Mm -hmm. um, but they will always predictably have the same outcome if they start the same way. Yeah, so provide the stimulus, the chain reaction happens, you get the system, you get the reliably predictable outcome. Exactly. And so they say it's predictably predictable. It's reliably predictable. Exactly. Chaotically predictable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so we we get in, I had to do a little song and dance in the book to like, what do we mean by chaos? The everyday use of chaos? No. Everyday use of chaos, we mean disorder, randomness. No, that's disorder and randomness. Yeah. Chaos is a is a highly um, special kind of order. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said, we see it in the world around us in fractal geometries. But um, at this boundary between chaos and order, uh, other patterns started arising in the game of life. And some of them actually even look biological. They look like- Yeah, they're beautiful. Are. Yeah. And, um, and David Packard and Chris Langton the, are the two people who really- narrowly focused on this and realized what was happening and complexity theory grew from their efforts. What they found is that in that zone, 
parts like chaos comprised a whole that was greater than the sum of the parts, but it was unpredictably greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. And this is what allows, there has to be a low level randomness in the system. And that's what allows the flexibility of living things to adapt and change if the environment changes. So um, I'll give an ant example because I love ant examples so much. Well, while you take your sip, let me just throw out there. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and my guest is Dr. Neil Thies. And right now he's taking us through the journey uh, through chaos into complexity. So give me that ant example. Okay. What do you got? <laughs> so, um, ants are living things and their interactions um, are governed by the rules of complexity theory. So stepping back, one can say that complexity theory is the science of how living things come to be in the universe, how they interact with each other um, to create more complex life, and how living things interact with each other to create bigger systems. So ants form colonies, people form neighborhoods or cities or economies, um, cells create tissues and organs and bodies, etc. Complexity describes all that with the same very simple mathematics. And I'm going to share one of the, the there are four simple rules, and I'll share one of them now. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at an ant colony, and you see a food line of ants, it looks like a straight line going between the, you know, a sugar cube <laughs> and the colony. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. But if you bend down and look more closely, you see that there's always uh, some ants, three to 4% that aren't following the food line. Um, and these look like, uh, you know, ants that are not evolutionarily with it. <laughs> you know, there's this food <laughs> yeah, line they're here. Confused. What are they doing? Yeah. And these were the ants when I was a kid. Um, you know, what kid doesn't like ants? It's why <laughs> everyone yeah, was a kid looking at ants and um, which is why they're good examples. And for me, particularly memorable was the fact that my mother was a clean freak and she was terrified of having an ant invasion into her kitchen. And if I saw an ant wandering around in her kitchen, I felt sorry for it because it was like, oh God, poor evolutionarily maladapted ant <laughs> sadly wandering off into my mother's uh... kitchen. And I would get it on a piece of paper and carry it outside to its friends. Um, but my mother was right. <laughs> she knew that that random ant that wasn't following the food line, that was the advance guard for a home invasion. Mm -hmm. It would find a crumb in my mother's kitchen, turn around, follow its own scent trails. Ants communicate by pheromones, scent trails. Go back to the colony and other ants would find its scent trail and go back to the food. And very quickly, there'd be thousands of ants going into my mother's kitchen. So <laughs> she was right. Um, so those those that few number of ants that aren't following the line they're the the secret of how the colony will find the next food source even before the first one runs out or let's say you put your foot down in the middle of the line it's those ants not the ants in the line it's those divergent ants that will rapidly find a new route around your foot to keep the food line going in, in an efficient fashion um so this low-level randomness is key to complex systems, and chaotic mm. systems don't have that. Uh, clocks and radios don't, don't have that. Um, and what that allows is if the environment changes, there can be subtle shifts in how the system organizes itself. If you have too much randomness, then you don't get any self-organization. Yeah, no stability. Yeah, it's just ants going every which way, not paying attention to each other, like people in some bad situations. <laughs> and it doesn't work. <laughs> some divergence in order to have the problem solving and mm -hmm. the adaptability, but we don't want so much divergence that there's no stability, right? Like right. if I, if my cells don't know how to organize into organs, I can't function. But if I don't have any adaptability and my environment changes suddenly, it's, it's particularly muggy and hot here today. Like suddenly I'm, you know, overheated because my internal body can't regularly. my body temperature fails yeah right right and and the way i like to describe it is at the at the too little randomness end of the scale then there's no flexibility that's a machine mm. and yeah. and bodies are not machines and this is part of my um critique of how we think about biological systems mm. 
um, is that we have these metaphors of bodies as machines, but, um, but machines can't change, they can't adapt. And th there's no flexibility there. And so it's an inappropriate metaphor and that leads to a lot of, of misunderstandings about what living things are, how they behave, how to take care of them, how to nurture them. Well, um, I'm glad that you bring that up some kind of like to dovetail back to where we started because one of the things that I learned from you as you shared, and I'm so glad you brought up like cities and ants because it's actually how you explained your work to me the first time you tried to tell me what you do, um, is it got me thinking about the way in which at the time I was working exclusively in the fitness industry and we were providing like, right, like stimulus response. And that's a lot of how fitness is structured. It's like, oh, if I just apply the right stimulus, I'm going to get the adaptation. But bodies are complex systems, right? right? And so it's not like a one-to-one -one stimulus adaptation. And if we don't recognize that complexity and divergence, we're not creating the space to be adaptable to where we find ourselves or our clients or one another or the species, right? And, and right. I, this, that for me was the entry point into how complexity theory actually dovetails into fitness and wellness and the way we live our lives and yeah. the whole yeah. nine. Yeah. The, the, the concept I highlight in the book is um, from a friend and mentor of mine named Stu Kaufman, who's one of the founders of complexity theory and, and uh, the greatest pioneer in terms of how it applies to questions of biology and evolution and, and, and such and how life might have started. And he talks about how this low level randomness in every moment, <clears throat> what's the next moment going to be in a machine, you know exactly what the next moment is going to be hmm. in um, something where there's just complete disorder. You have no idea what the next moment is going to be. It's an infinity of possibilities. But with this low level randomness in the system, then there's uncountable, undeterminable numbers, indeterminable numbers of possible next moments, but it's not infinite. It's constrained, mm. a very tight clustering. And we can't predict what the next moment will be other than to say it's one of these adjacent possibles. And yeah. so he has this phrase of the adjacent possibles, which hover over every moment, like a, you know, a shimmering cloud out of which the next moment arises. And the moment the next moment, as soon as the next moment happens, that cloud of adjacent possibles disappears and you have a new cloud of adjacent possibles. And so I, I was speaking about this stuff with a group of fascia people and yoga people the other day. And um, they got into a discussion of how no one pose, even the same person doing the same pose over and over again, it's never the same pose. Yeah, and it's never the same follow, twice. Yeah, and, and, what, and whatever may follow on that pose uh, may be flexibility and adaptation. It could also be a torn ligament. <laughs> I, I've, I've hurt myself badly in yoga classes. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> we can go there because we Cause I have issues. Have yeah. <laughs> hypermobility or Stanlow syndrome is part of right, what we right. over, and right? And so tears, you know, I, I tear a lot. And yeah. um, I needed Iyengar yoga as a method to um, uh, to constrain the round the hyper randomness. This is actually a good way of thinking about. It. So Ehlers Danlos yeah. syndrome, which we share, um, is weird collagen basically, um, and one of the effects of weird collagen is oh I can't pull my finger up. Oh, don't do it! Don't so. do it! We are extra bendy. We can yeah, do things. So, oh, I'll do the extra bendy one, so I can do that. Yeah, there you go. The fingertips. Yeah. Um, but everything can do that. And you can imagine that's not good. Too um, much randomness in the system. It's too much randomness in the system. And so there are more opportunities for the system to tear and break down. Um, but there are always, and th this is one of the, where complexity very quickly gets you into the metaphysical and the spiritual. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. So the boundary between order and chaos and, and David, uh, um, Packard coined the term life at the edge of chaos. The complexity lies at the edge of chaos. The edge of chaos is not a straight line mathematically. It's a fractal. And mm -hmm. so you'd think that you could plot any complex system at a point in that zone at the edge of chaos, and that would describe a complex system. But it doesn't, because 
the adjacent possibles, the low level mm -hmm. randomness. It's always moving around in that system. And given enough time, it's gonna trip on that fractal and either flip over into <laughs> chaos or flip over into rigid order. And either way, it dies. You have a mass extinction, mm -hmm. either mm -hmm. partial or whole. So the thing that allows us to be alive, to be creatively adaptive, to keep going <laughs> day after day, year after year, civilization, century after century, um, planets, millions of years. Um, that low-level randomness necessitates that eventually there will also be death. There's no such thing as eternal life. There's no such thing as a fountain of youth, um, despite um, <laughs> what people are trying to say now about, oh, uh, eternal life is just within our grasp. No, it's mm. not. Um, yeah, eventually the earth falls into the sun or the sun explodes and we're well, no amount of cloud computing is going to save that. Well, and, 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 you know, our bodies are not, we cannot tweak our bodies. So there are going to yeah. be limits. Yeah. And, um, well, and if I can chime in here, you're right. listening to the better, better than fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest is Dr. Neil Thies, and we're talking about complexity theory, uh, specifically how we all embrace complexity in the, our journey of our own lifespan, which I think is where we're tripping into now, is this idea that no amount of biohacking is going to make an infinite lifespan. Do you want to pick it up there, Neil? Yeah. So um, so there's so much chatter now uh, about how you know, an open-ended eternal human life is just around the corner. We're going to have enough biohacks or biomechanical hacks or, you know, et cetera. Um, yeah. It mathematically cannot happen. That's not the way the universe is structured. Hmm. Um, now the, the and, and, and suddenly math is telling us something about life and death. And, yeah. you know, Which is, that, that was a surprise to me. <laughs> well, I, I think eventually, right, living in this space that we both, I think, float in, um, in different ways between, the concept of evidence-based practice, science, documentable systems, and um, you know, consciousness studies and belief, we are in the, the the nature of science is exploring our reality, right? And to, and even with the hard questions of consciousness, we're still going to continue to explore. And so it doesn't surprise me to talk about like, okay, now math is is showing us the realities of life and death. But I want to, if we can, circle back to adjacent possible, sure. because I think that concept uh, for our listeners is a very rich place to mine this idea of emergence and that whether we're talking about work in ourselves, we're talking about work in our communities, work in our worlds, we can sit here all day long and catastrophize, right? We can pull out every cognitive distortion in the book, but at the end of the day, it's our choices around the emergent possible that shape our reality. If we're talking about, you know, the butterfly effect or, or really any of our choices. And, and even when we're talking about math explaining life or death, your book ends in an incredibly hopeful note. And I'm of a similar mind. And if we can follow this train for a second around, Yes, you talked about system collapse. You talked about the randomness eventually brings us to a place of systems collapse, but systems collapse isn't inherently bad. And I think people hearing it might think it's yeah. a negative, but can you yeah. just speak to that a bit about working with the emergent possible and that yes, things collapse, but that's not the end of the game no. because complexity the game goes means on. blinking out. Yes. The game is eternal. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, uh, you mentioned the word emergent and I sort of skipped defining that. <laughs> That's a jargon term in complexity theory, but an important one. Um, what is also different about complex systems is that from interactions at just the local level, ants interacting with each other, humans interacting with each other on the street or on the telephone, that's still local. You're still connected <laughs> ear to ear. Right um, now. You know, that, um, that out of those local interactions, you get um, structures arising like the food lines, like the way a neighborhood behaves, like economic systems um, at the global scale. And those are called emergent properties or just emergence. So a hallmark of complex systems is you get local interactions which give rise to emergent structures on the global scale. 
Now, when I started thinking about this stuff, um, and I'm sure this was a piece of, of how we first talked about it, because I, you know, the, I, I should say the book is actually um, uh, represents 20 years of talks I've been giving PowerPoint mm. talks um, to groups like stem cell biologists, to fifth graders, to yoga groups, to Zen, to Zen Buddhists. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so I've been, I've been working with this material for, for a very long time. And, um, and one of the interesting things about it is that no matter, you know, unlike most didactic talks I give, you know, I'm a liver pathologist, so I teach liver disease to medical students. We all know what the things we're going to have to learn by the end of the talk are. Uh, everyone's going to arrive at the same place at the same time. With this talk, one of the most common uh, comments I've gotten right from the very beginning was people saying, your talk was so amazing. I went home and told everyone I'd heard this amazing talk and they asked me what it was about and I couldn't tell them. <laughs> 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 I will be curious if people could tell me what this episode's about. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and it doesn't matter they don't have to, nor does anyone no. have to be able to recapitulate the book. What's yes. been special about this material is everybody pings in a different way. Yes. And when I'm giving the talk and have an audience, I see light bulbs going off across the room. It's not like one big light bulb at the end and everyone is patiently waiting till we get there. It's just... And in the question and answers, there's always stuff I haven't thought of. Yeah. It's it's endlessly rich material. That's why, um, you know, the the podcasts I've been doing for the book, every single podcast, we start off with what's complexity theory. <laughs> um, but then we wind up in completely different, you know, different zones. And Well, um, otherwise yeah. it would be chaos, wouldn't it? Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so. But I think it's what's so interesting and fun about it, right, yeah. is that. This is one of those topics that's so rich and so diverse that we could have, you know, endless conversations and explorations that would fork off in a million ways. Yeah. I think if I'm going to steer the fork, if I'm going to play with the adjacent right. possible uh, and control for it, um, what I think would be fun to explain is some of the scales. Right. That, that's that that's where I wanted about. to go next. Yeah. Great. Go there. I, I went down that rabbit hole. Nah, um, come back up and go a different one. Okay. This is fun. So we were talking about emergence. Mm. Um, so an example of emergence is a flock of birds and they're just paying attention to their neighbors, but you look up in the sky and there's this shape, particularly with starlings. You have murmurations of starlings and they look like they're objects in the sky. And, um, one time uh, I was, uh, my husband and I were visiting uh, some friends in Rome and I heard this noise in the sky and I'd never heard that noise before. So I looked up with the expectation, you know, some sort of plane, helicopter. Um, and we looked up and I saw this shape in the sky and it took me a moment to realize that it's not a thing, it's a flock of birds. Um, and, uh, our friend Todd said, oh, the starlings are flying, are migrating through Rome. And so I said, he had just asked me, what are you working on? And I said, that's what I'm working on. So at one level of scale from a distance, a flock looks like this solid thing. It may be moving and changing shape, but it's, it looks like a thing. Or an ant colony from a distance will look like a dark thing on the ground. Um, but when you go up more closely, you see that no, it's, it's actually a phenomenon arising from smaller things, the birds or the ants. And I said, but if you go closer to one of the birds or to the ant, um, at the microscopic level, they disappear. The ant disappears, the bird disappears. All you have is cells self-organizing. So just as my finger pointing up at the flock looks like a solid thing. At the cellular level, our body is not a thing at all. It's a community of cells that are self-organizing. And this leads to implicitly a very strange um, outcome. Because if you think about it, um, what are, at this level of scale, our boundary is here. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. If we were in the room together rather than online, we'd be two separate objects sitting in a room. Now we're shedding skin cells all the time. The dust of our rooms is mostly dead skin, right? So what are the boundaries of our bodies at the cellular level? Well, the rooms in which we live. But we also now know, because of all the microbiome research of the last 20 years or so, 
that um, 50% of our body's cells are not our human cells. They are cells, bacteria mostly, but also other things, um, fungi, viruses, etc., covering the outside surfaces of our body and lining all the crevices within our bodies. Those aren't infections. Those are necessary parts of what it is to be a living human. So if you don't have a microbiome, you're not going to survive very long because um, the, micro, the bacteria of the microbiome are what break down molecules in the surface of your skin cells to create lubricants that allow your joints to bend. And, and the mucosa in your gut too, breaking. right? Pardon? And the mucosa in your gut too, right? Well, and in the gut, they change the lining so that without the bacteria, yeah. you don't have absorptive surfaces and you won't be able to absorb food and you'll be leaking stuff out of your bowel. Um, your immune system depends on interactions with the microbiome. So you have no immune system. So very quickly- Your serotonin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you cease to become a functioning human. Yeah. Um, and you die. So our microbiomes are equally part of our bodies as much as our human cells are. And what we now know is that if you have a community of people, you know, family um, or roommates in an apartment, uh, their microbiomes merge into a single larger microbiome that shares those humans. And it includes the pets. Yep. <laughs> so the bird or the dog or the cat. So at the cellular level, again, our boundary is wider. It, fills the spaces that we inhabit during the day and during the night. Um, so our workplaces as well. And when you ever, you know, if you turn a doorknob, you're leaving some of your microbiome behind. You kiss someone on the cheek, you're leaving some of your microbiome behind mm. and taking some of theirs with them. So boundaries at the cellular level are wider. Um, well, are cells a fundamental thing? Western biology and Western medicine is defined, actually. This is what we mean by that. Western medicine and Western biology means that all living things are, are made of cells which derive from pre-existing cells. That's the cell doctrine. And that's what we mean by Western. Um, so are cells a thing, you know? Um, the way a flock wasn't a thing, the way our bodies are not things. Is a cell a thing? Mm. Um, well, no, if you go down to the nanoscopic level, the molecular level, the cell ceases to exist and it's just molecules floating in water which are other molecules. So it's just mm. molecules. Molecules and molecules. Hmm? Yeah, molecules and molecules. Yeah. So where is your boundary at the molecular level? Well, the simplest example is um, we're breathing in CO2 from the plant mass of the planet. And we're breathing out. I'm sorry. Out <laughs> you got it. We're breathing in oxygen and we're breathing out carbon dioxide for the plants. So at the molecular level, we are seamlessly integrated into the entire biomass of the planet. Mm -hmm. So the boundaries get wider the farther out you go. At the atomic level, um, we can think of ourselves as these beings which think of themselves as separate, walking and talking on top of this rock we call planet Earth. But there's no atom in our bodies that we didn't drink, eat, or breathe from the planet. So you can view us as separate sitting on this rock, or you can think of us as the planet that in three and a half billion years has self-organized itself into the emergent properties of having beings that think of themselves as different, <laughs> but they're wrong. And our boundary at the atomic level is the entire planet. Yeah. Once you get down below the atomic level, you're in the quantum realm. And what we now know in the quantum realm and confirmation of this won the Nobel Prize last year or the year before is that at the quantum level, there are no outsides. <laughs> there are no boundaries. <laughs> the entire universe is contained by the entire universe. It differentiates within itself, but there is no self and other at that level. Um, it's all one seamless whole. So complexity theory shows us that where our boundaries are and how we are separate or not from each other is dependent on the scale of observation. And again, this takes us into the, the spiritual lane of things. Um, you know, we read uh, cliched things about, well, the universe and us, we are all one, etc. And those are cliches. But as I, as I get older, I find cliches are cliches for a reason. Yeah. It's actually scientifically true. Our sense that we're separate has to do with us selecting, um, which we're trained to do and we're wired to do, 
to, to privilege this level of scale. But there are ways in which you can feel those boundaries dissolve. If you're playing on a sports team that's really finely tuned and you get into that dynamic flow where suddenly it's just one being. The team has all its parts, but there's something more than that. Dinner yeah. parties can be like that, you know? It can be a bunch of people yeah, dinner, or it can be this magical thing. Yeah, um, it's a convergence of self-transcendence and flow states, right? Um, yeah. um, I'm trying to remember the technical name for group flow, but that's really like what you're talking about. That's right? exactly um, what I'm talking about. Uh, Jonathan Haidt calls it hiving. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you're in that group flow and part of the hallmark of flow is your sense of self and time dissolving, right? right. And you're conceiving yourself as part of a system. Right. And what a lot of our spiritual traditions do globally, you know, uh, around the planet um, are finding ways to change your perspective. So it could be through contemplative practice and um, through turning your mind inwards to trace where are the sources of this mind? Where, where do you go? If you look for the boundaries of your awareness, mm. um, you wind up in the in this quantum continuity. Um, but it can also come from uh, a path of service where you're just focused in every encounter with a human, another human that you have, any living being, that you're there to be of service. The sense of connection that that can foster is another way to achieve a direct experience of that kind of flow. Um, this came to me in a dream once. I woke up with someone saying to me, um, uh, giving and receiving uh, boundaries are where there is giving and receiving in the realm of the boundless and this way of describing the universe I call it the boundless body in the book um, in the realm of the boundless there is nothing to give and nothing to receive Yeah, we're all and the what's the what's the thing that arises from a being that has no boundaries it's compassion because mm. there's no you don't have to consider you know if your hand hits a hot stove your left hand your right hand doesn't sit and ponder whether it should help <laughs> yeah. it just does it yeah um because it's you because you experience it as you if you experience even for a moment the universe being a seamless whole and there's suffering that's you that's suffering. What's going to be the response? Compassion. So, but it also, I think, <laughs> where you probably would like to go for your audience, and I think it's <laughs> to go there. No one else has given me this opportunity to talk about this angle. So Please. when you're with uh, a care client, yes. doing any this is where of, my mind was going as well. Yeah. So at the, you know, if, if I, I speak to, um, you know, because of the interstitium stuff, I'm, 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 uh, I get to hang out with fascia world, which includes osteopaths and cranial sacral workers and rolfers and other body workers of different types, dancers, etc. And let's say you're, you're a body worker and you have a client and they're on a table and you enter the room already, the quantum boundaries of your bodies are mingling the electrical mm -hmm. properties of your bodies are mingling. Mm -hmm. um, and then you hover your hands over that person, maybe start to touch them. Is it one body or two? If you <laughs> get stuck in the idea that you're two, then the therapeutic process or the, the cultivation of wellness is this stunted thing where it's like, I'm acting upon you. But if you can, if you have the instinct to sink in to the unity that is scientifically true. It's not a metaphor. Yeah, this is it's not woo-woo stuff we're making it's, up. It's not woo-woo stuff I'm making up at all. Um, and I think that's that's what, a, what healers do. You know when you meet a healer, you know? And I've had healers who have done body work. I've had healers who have been physical therapists. Um, I've had healers who were fitness trainers in the gym and you're my best example of that. Um, because there was something between us that was non-mechanical. And part of it comes back to the adjacent possibles is, uh, and this is where complexity conditions to some extent how I deal with life. Um, 
in the cloud of adjacent possibles, there are mass extinction events, there's stability, and there's the possibility for sudden creativity. Um, all of those things are there. Um, we can um, make the possibilities for creative adaptation a bit more robust. And there's a whole thing in the book about how to think about that. But that sort of cultivation is what we're talking about uh, in the kind of things you're trying to do for people and with people. More importantly, I shouldn't say for, what you're trying to do with Thank people you. is cultivate a range of adjacent possibles that tilts towards creative adaptation. And there are times where it doesn't work. So, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we spoke beforehand, it's not a secret. I had a couple of strokes a few months ago, two little uh, mass extinction events in my brain. Um, I don't have, I'm very lucky. I don't have any residual deficits from it. I've had to deal with a lot of fatigue um, and uh, it's getting better slowly. But the potential for that, or any one of a number of, of a million, diff billions of, you know, outcomes that would not favor me, um, that really knocked me on my butt. And um, the universe sort of said, stop. Um, and <laughs> I- is not I, what you're good at. It's not what I'm good at. You of all people know that I don't know how to stop, but you can't ignore that. And what I'm now coming to realize a few months later is that the message wasn't just stop, it was stop and pay attention. Mm -hmm. So now I've got this rotator cuff tear, like I needed this. And a few other things happened in the last few weeks health-wise that aren't even worth going into. But I'm finding um, that it's not changing my mood. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not becoming pessimistic. I'm just shifting. Okay, I thought my life was on this trajectory. It's now on this trajectory. They're all just selections out of the adjacent possibles. Yeah, it's just an experience in consciousness, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm, I can't help but think, and when you told me that you had your strokes, um, I couldn't help but think about the way that Ramdas would relate to his strokes. Mm -hmm. and, and for anyone listening who doesn't know who Ramdas is, it's Richard Alpert. Um, and he when he had his strokes, he talked about it being one of the most instructive experiences in compassion. Um, and you use that word a few moments ago and my mind keeps coming back to it as you're, as you're talking about the healer in the room and how we conceive of ourselves as healers. And, and I really think of it as any open-hearted person yeah. has the creativity and the empathy to open themselves up to imagining the emergent possible for other, right? Yeah. But yeah. it's not actually other because it's in a human experience and consciousness and the potential mm -hmm. exists for all of us to have all of those experiences. Yeah. It is a question of whether or not you're willing to allow yourself to be in that space and consciousness, even if only in your own imagination. Yeah. And that then opens up the compassion Yep. And I know you and I have talked about this before. I wholeheartedly believe that my skill to do that comes from having Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Yeah. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that you feel that the strokes are instructive right. um, for so many reasons. And I think that that's also so true that so many healers have had their own wounding, right? It's the Chiron experience mm -hmm. of the wounded healer. Um, There's a Hasidic... Uh rabbi from the 18th century, early 18th century, named uh, Nachman of Bratslav, uh, who said, the only heart which is whole is the heart that has been broken. Mm. And, you know, or as Leonard Cohen would say, the cracks are where the light gets in. Yeah. But something else I would bring in, um, you know, and, and talking about this material, other people are giving me things all the time. Uh, that's how the material has grown from mm. 20 years ago to what it's become in the book. And now it's, you know, more people are reading it and coming back at me with things. A friend of mine in my Zen Buddhist group um, has cancer and is dealing with recurrence and clinical trials. And um, she told me about how uh, her oncologist said to her, you know, so many of, you're, you're such a, um, an admirable and easy patient to deal with in the face of everything that's going on. So many of her patients, she said, can't get out of why me, asking why me? And Anger. my friend shrugged and said, well, that's not the question. The question is why not me? 
Mm. You know, the, you've got your adjacent possibles and they contain these things too. The question is um, not how can you avoid them or how long you can successfully avoid them. You can't. Um, yeah. But how are you in the face of it? How do we relate you, to them? Yeah. Do you meet it with resilience? Um, can you... Um, accept that suffering, but still take joy in other things that are just as you'd want them to be? Are you caught up in your pain? The linden trees just um, started blooming outside our building. A week ago was their, their yearly blooming. We get five days of linden tree scent in the air. It's my favorite smell. Um, and I was walking along. I also had <laughs> hurt my leg. So I'm walking. <laughs> my leg is, you know, a problem. My shoulder's a problem. It hurts. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. And I walk under the tree and all of a sudden, yeah, I was wise. out of myself and, um, and things were back in perspective again. There are people who, that's a choice, you know, it may not be an easy choice, but you can cultivate that sort of flexibility. Um, and I think again, coming back to spiritual practices like meditating service, devotional practice, what these are, we, we say they're religion and that, you know, gets in the way of understanding that they are skillful means to open yourself up, to be flexible, to be able to change your view from one view to another and then back again. There is no single right answer. How do you dance uh, between the possibilities? Um, and, I, I, you know, in the, the end of the book, I, I close by saying, none of these words are going to help anybody because they don't concepts don't help anybody um but they can be a pointer to the possible utility of cultivating ways of being in the world of experiencing the world um and and th this is partly what you taught me when we first met at the gym when i came in i felt like a really broken person um, and I felt like a perpetually broken person. I was, because of the others down low, I was tearing things all the time. Um, and I felt that my body was this foreign thing. I had to sort of wrestle to the ground. And you just kept showing me, partly by example and partly by guidance, instruction, that I could find ways to be in my body that could, that it had more possibilities than I was aware of. And it wasn't all about, uh, you know, just preventing future suffering. Um, I could flourish within that. And then when new things happen like this, it's like, oh, no, this is just part of my flourishing. It's not the thing that, you know, I've yeah. been fending off. It's the next time. lesson. Yeah. Well, I think that that brings me to kind of where I want to button us is, um, you know, you talked about mass extinction and this kind of dance between mass extinction events and emergence. And in the book, you talk about, mass extinction creating opportunity and just now you've been talking about you know why not why not me right it's coming eventually it's part of the human experience suffering mm -hmm. is part of the human experience and and then what yeah. and i think for me one of the things that you richly seeded in my mind many moons ago that came back in in beautiful language in the book is yeah we're facing some very real challenges at the, at the species level. Mm -hmm. um, in, and like you said, depends what scale we're looking at, but it's still there that the, the threat of mass extinction, if I think about the events of the weekend and we're all just watching if World War III is about to pop, um, that in the face of even that intensity is the opportunity for creativity and the making of space for mm -hmm. what next. Mm -hmm. And to me, that speaks to a core human resilience that if we're thinking about the emergent possible, right, the adjacent possible, excuse me, that's the adjacent possibles we want to be pointing to so that we are resilient and hearty regardless right. of when the big pop comes and regardless of what scale it's at because we can choose to steer toward that belief system. Right. Um, and, and you are one of the important people in my life who've taught me that. And I don't know if you want to speak to it. I don't know if there's a question in there at all, yeah, uh, but no, it no, is no, where no, the no, book no. landed for me. And you right. say like, oh, these words aren't going to help anybody. 
yeah, we got to choose the application, but the concepts really matter. I had finished the book pretty much um, back in December. Um, and then uh, Mark and I, my husband and I, um, were having drinks with a few people. And one of them was a, a guy in his mid-20s. And um, he was expressing his anger at our generation for mm -hmm. having messed up the world so badly. And, you know, again, it's one thing for me to talk about, you know, facing my rotator cuff tear. It's another thing to talk about climate change, World War Three, <laughs> you know, yeah. economic Take collapse, pandemics, you know, et cetera. And I thought to myself, if I don't have something to say to him about that, then why am I bothering to write the book in the first place? And that's where the last two paragraphs came into the book, um, where I talk about, I grew up in the shadow of one tremendous mass extinction event. I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. And I came of age as a gay man in New York City during the AIDS era. So I survived, and I'm HIV positive. I survived so far <laughs> a mass extinction event. And growing up, I could see it as a kid that there, my, my synagogue was all German survivors. And some of them were broken. They were, they were bitter, angry, or depressed people who um, found little joy in life. And there were those who were resilient in the face of the trauma they experienced and the losses they had experienced um, and faced life with joy and excitement and interest. Um, uh, so that's possible. Um, during the AIDS era, you know, I saw people die terrible deaths of, you know, depression, anger, tremendous fear. But I also saw people who reached a remarkable state of equanimity and, and um, appreciation for those few moments they had left and lived them fully moment to moment. So complexity gives us tools to think of how to meet uh, and modulate mass extinction events if we see them coming. And so those are those four rules I mentioned that are in the book. You can apply them to anything in the world, whether it's economic systems, climate change, et cetera. So we can modulate them. Maybe the mass extinction doesn't have to be as large. Maybe we can influence it. Maybe we can even avoid it uh, altogether for a time. But there will be extinction events that we can't avoid. And who are we in the face of that? One of the surprising things to me about the book, I'm really, <laughs> this happened this week, really. It's sort of a little flood of postings online as the book is getting out there. Um, there was suddenly a wave of postings from people saying things like, my husband was diagnosed with stage four cancer and reading your book gives me an understanding of how to cope with what's coming next. Or I have cancer. And the book gave me hope of who I can be in the face of that. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what more can I ask that, that, that it's received with that kind of uh, response? So. Um, it's a gift. Yeah. Yeah. It's the gift of the, the same gift of service that you were talking about moments ago. And um, I know your self-deprecating humor, and uh, one of the things I've been, I'm, I'm waiting for you to make the brush off joke, but it's, um, it's a gift to me. It's just, not a brush off joke. It isn't I feel like I'm the words. recipient. It mm -hmm. isn't just words. And yeah. it has been, um, you in my life has been remarkably helpful in the journey that I've been on to help other people. And it doesn't surprise me at all that in reading your work, other people have found your help. And so I normally would thank you for being on the show, uh, but instead I'm just going to thank you for being my friend and for writing such a beautiful book. So thank you. Thank you for being my friend and for having <laughs> such a wonderful show. I can't tell you, do you know what Stoltz means in Yiddish? No. It's kind <laughs> of me. proud, you know, I'm, I'm Stoltz with someone, but it's, it's a bit more robust than just proud. And it's like, you know, like a mama is proud of her boy. <laughs> Your intellectual <laughs> progeny? Stoltz with with how you've moved forward on your path and the sort of you know what you did in terms of uh deeper education and then 
moving past. We both know where we were both stuck 10, 15 <laughs> years ago. And uh, and I'm stolz with you <laughs> about Thank you. what you've accomplished. And I mean that. Well, See, we were always talking about getting together, but she lives over there and I live over here. <laughs> and then COVID, and it's just been, so we're using this as an opportunity. Yeah, this is what we we're are. like together over dinner. Um, well, the book is Notes on Complexity. Dr. Neil Thies, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, and of course, to our listeners, we'd love to hear any feedback that you have on this or any episode. So if you want to find me, you can drop me an email. It's info at darlene.coach. I'm on Instagram. It's also darlene.coach. Uh, and of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. As a fan of the show, I hope you'll subscribe. Thank you to everyone who's been writing us some reviews and everybody who reached out to send me a testimonial. Uh, and I would really appreciate if you've been positively affected by the show that you go ahead and do that. Um, Neil, where can we find you on the interwebs? Um neilthiesofficial.com because I once had neilthies.com but somehow lost control of it. I don't know. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so Just a bit of the chaos. <laughs> and um, I've got a lot of old videos that are posted on YouTube of talks I've given over the years, different slants on this. They will be moved to the official website eventually. Um, so that's probably the best place. And I'm on and Matthew and LinkedIn and you know. Matthew has told me that the audiobook is also quite good. So uh, yes. I'll plug that one. <laughs> um, thank you to everyone uh, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Reach out with any feedback and be well. Mm -hmm.